Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and joining me in our virtual studios from South Bend, Indiana, is my good friend, my colleague, and literally, and I usually say something funny, but I just want to say this from the heart, really one of the smartest guys that I know, uh, the one and only Ken Hellenius. Hello, Deacon. It's a pleasure, and I'm overwhelmed. Thank you kindly for your words. <laughs> well, like I said, Ken, you know, we uh, have a very, very special show today because our guest is the one and only Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, literally, I mean, from my from my perspective, say he's just one of the the, the greatest Catholic theologians uh, of the last twenty years. Um, you know, I I can't even tell you how many books of his that I have. <laughs> if you look in my library, I have a whole section of just Scott Hahn books on my on my shelf. Um, he's influenced so many people, um, myself uh, included. Back even back in the days when they were doing cassettes, you know, uh, through St. Joseph Communications and uh, I used to get the cassettes. Uh, I think they were recording his classes at that time. And I would get those and just pop them in and just just keep listening to them over and over again, not just to learn so I can Im- imbibe the material, you know, and it's so, okay. How can I take this great teaching and not just learn new stuff, but how to incorporate it into my everyday lived experience? Yeah, I've been working with RCIA at the parish, and I can't tell you how many people have mentioned as they're kind of looking at the Catholic Church, they've said, you know, I've been listening to this talk by Dr. Scott Hahn. I was like, oh, yeah, I know that talk. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the amazing things is since you yourself, Doctor, have come to the church through reading and prayer and really the action of grace, that is something that so many people who are making that journey themselves, you really connect and you can speak the language that they know and that is familiar to so many of our evangelical brothers and sisters and point out that in the Catholic Church, you found, you know, the fullness of what God had prepared you for in in all of that study. Well, thank you, Ken. And thank you, Deacon Harold. It's great to join you and uh, to sit back and listen as you describe this fella, this persona that I've had to bear you know, if I didn't know me, I might be impressed. You know? <laughs> I do. And so I am not. But, uh, you know, what God has done with dirt ever since he formed Adam from the dust, you know, it leaves us utterly impressed uh, with him. Um, but yeah, you you said it right, Ken, in terms of its grace from beginning to end, because, you know, I wasn't just an evangelical Protestant. I was anti-Catholic. And you know, it wasn't bigotry or prejudice. It was just deep and profound misunderstandings that took years and years to clear up. But I was the last person on the planet that anybody, my friends, my my classmates, and myself would have ever expected to become Catholic. But we're now getting ready to celebrate 35 years in 2021. And so thanks be to God. Wow. You know, it's something that filled me with great joy. I was in Israel um, for spring break with our students about a year ago. And you, your 
tour group, you and your wife and a wonderful tour group and our group were leapfrogging sites. And together okay. we prayed and had mass at the Holy Sepulcher together. Uh, oh, and and uh, so because that morning I know we had left and each of us had done uh, the uh, way of the cross on the way to the sepulcher. Oh, and uh, that was the first time I'd seen you in the flesh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> much. <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, Dr. Han, you know, you're, you're a professor at the University of Steubenville, one of the great Catholic universities of our country. You're also the founder of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And um, you've written a great new book along with Brandon McGinley. Now, just interesting enough, Brandon was the editor of my fourth book, my book on Father Augustus Tolton. And Brandon McGinley was the editor. And I'm like, and I saw his name on the book here. It's called, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic book, amazing endorsements. Um, so just tell us, what, what was the impetus for, for this particular book at, at this time? Well, I'm glad you mentioned my co-author, Brandon McGinley, because he was just down here a couple of days ago. He lives in Pittsburgh with his wife, Katie, and their four kids, and, and Pittsburgh's about less than an hour away. And we have developed a strong friendship over the last several years, and he also assisted me as editor of The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. And so we've been in lockstep, in deep sync ever since, and uh, it has been a wonderful collaboration. So, you know, the book really began back in 2018. Uh, we've been working on it, you know, pretty intensely, but because we've got so many other projects, it does seem at times to be intermittent. Uh, and so what we have here in this book is in some ways the summary and synthesis of a number of books that I've done over the years. I'm thinking in particular of the Lamb's Supper, uh, the Mass is Heaven and Earth where we don't build the kingdom of God, we receive it as a gift that comes from heaven above. And so once we recognize that in the celebration of the sacraments, we're not performing rituals to sort of bend the will of God. He is the one who administers the sacraments through Christ by the power of the Spirit, as you well know, to bring to us extraordinary graces to invest our ordinary work with divine effects, usually invisible, subtle, and that sort of thing. So I did a book called Swear to God, uh, focusing on the promise and the power of the sacraments, because the notion of sacramentum is lost to many Catholics, and that is, it's the Latin word for covenant oath, and it was the oath of office that every officer swore in, you know, every branch of the, the government, Greece, Rome, but America too, executive, judicial, uh, legislative, federal, state, and local. My wife is the local city councilman at large. I held the Bible while she swore the oath, the sacramentum. We don't know why we do it, but we, we do it to help, you know, so help me God. And so there's been a narrative arc that has led to this particular book that Brandon was quite aware of. And uh, it's, it's 15 chapters long. It's divided up into three parts. The first part, five chapters or so, focuses on religion, uh, the right and wrong understandings of it. The second part focuses upon how when secularism takes over a culture, people assume that we have successfully privatized religion and relativized any truth claims that religious people might make when in fact, we've backed ourselves into a new form of religion, a public religion, which is secularism itself. As Dylan says, you gotta serve somebody, you know? 
And what you discover is that secularism doesn't really privatize religion. It just simply displaces religion rooted in divine revelation with one another secularism with that is rooted in power and politics. Not that politics is wrong, but it needs to be subordinate to the transcendent realm. And so my favorite section naturally really consists of the last five chapters where we're focusing more positively on what the subtitle is. So it is it is right and just why the future of civilization depends upon true religion. And so civilization depends on religion, and then true religion integrates individual lives, marriages, families, neighborhoods, cities. And I mean, historians and anthropologists will tell us is humans are rational animals, they're social animals, but they're also religious because our relationship to God is something inherent and primordial. Before we're even related to our parents, we are persons because God has made us, in a sense, ex nihilo, to be in immediate relation to him. It might take us years to discover that, but once we do, what is last in discovery ends up being first in the order of importance, as Aristotle might put it. This, I have to say, is an incredibly wide-ranging book, and you describe it as the synthesis of so much. I mean, I'm reading it, and I'm thinking about uh, philosopher Aris, uh, uh, Alistair McIntyre, his idea of the concept of unchosen obligations. I'm reading um, and seeing Patrick Deneen, who wrote a book on why liberalism failed. I'm seeing, uh, the, of course, the idea of integralism. Uh, we think of, you know, the Catholic legal scholar Adrian Vermeule himself. Right, and Potter Edmund, too. Yes. Potter Edmund, of course. And, and, and most especially, in some ways, Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. Right. All of these are in the ether and they're in our public conversations. But as you say, it's also synthesizing things you've been thinking about from your particular theological perspective uh, and that is suffused with Bible and sacraments together. So, I mean, there, there's a lot going. And then of course we, we have the idea of what's going on in recent elections and COVID, all of these sorts of things. I had my own purposes. Brandon had his. They converged for sure. We also had a sense of timing. You know, in the year 2020, I came out with a book entitled Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. And I thought, well, my timing was Easter. You know, God's timing was COVID. It came out in the immediate aftermath of COVID where everybody was surprised by, you know, the inevitability of death. And so it was the most timely book, except that It Is Right and Just came in the aftermath of this controversial election in November of 2020. And and so once again, I had this sense of gratitude and humility because it's like man disposes, but God, you know, we it just man proposes, God disposes, but you never really know what's coming next. And I since I mentioned, I should trace this all the way back to my evangelical Protestant days because in college and in seminary. I was not just a reformed Calvinist. I was I was sort of part of this movement known as theonomy, Christian reconstruction, where like St. Thomas does in the Prima Secundae, you know, questions 98 through roughly 103, there's a lot we can learn from ancient Israel, from the Old Testament, from the judicial statutes of Moses. I mean, we usually just completely ignore them. And even good Dominican Thomists write commentaries on practically every part of the Summa, but they skip over that. Even Cajetan, better contemplated than commentated. But the lessons that you can learn for social order and this spiritual origin of society, 
you know, obviously God used Moses as the instrument for that in ancient Israel's history. Well, I was fascinated by that in college and in seminary. When I got to know the movement more deeply and up close, I began to sense that there were some profound problems. So I went in search of a church that fit what I found in scripture because the law of Moses was not primarily judicial, political, or economic. It was overwhelmingly liturgical. In Exodus, especially Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, roughly 70 to 80% of the Mosaic legislation has to do with worship and sacrifice. And not just because, well, they were a theocracy, but because religion, even as Cicero and Seneca recognized, is a form of justice. And, you know, we, we think of Alistair McIntyre, since you mentioned him, you know, and we, we think of after virtue and the recovery of virtue and virtue ethics. It is probably the single greatest rediscovery, reappropriation for all of ethics, for all of morality in the last 40 years. You know, and justice in a certain sense is the crowning virtue, to give to others what is their due. And we usually start on the bottom, you know, looking at commutative justice, you know, transactional commercial exchange, and then distributive justice, which is fairness and equity, especially for the weak and the infirm and the needy. But we forget the transcendent expressions of justice where you can't possibly repay your parents because they gave you life. So you honor them. You can't repay your country because the common good was established before you took your first breath. And so patriotism is a transcendent justice. But you know the highest form of transcendent justice for the ancients, apart from ancient Israelite scripture, as I said, for, for Cicero and for Seneca, and even in Aristotle's commentary on the Athenian constitution, religion, sacrifice, altars, this isn't private, this is public, this isn't just personal, it's social, you know, and it's like, what's going on here? Wait a minute. And, and so the virtue of virtues is what St. Thomas Aquinas calls religion, and he's not referring to revelation, he's just referring to natural reason applied to the natural order, you know, reaching natural theology, and seeing God as the source and beginning of the source and end of all things. And so not only is it right and just to give God thanks and praise, not only is it our duty and our salvation to not acknowledge him, to not thank him, to not praise him, to not offer sacrifice, even to the pagans would have seemed incomprehensible, unthinkable. And so if we're going to talk about justice, not only for rational animals, but for social animals, we've got to look at religion. If it's right and just to give them thanks and praise, you back yourself into an inescapable conclusion that it's horribly wrong, and it's a massive injustice to ignore God or to adopt false gods and that sort of thing. And so, sorry about this, the life of Zooming. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, those conclusions end up becoming, you know, something that was hiding, but hiding in plain view. I mean, it's just a series of self-evident propositions. And when you trace them, you're like, okay, we've been lied to when it comes to the truth of religion and how inherent it is in our social existence, you know, and there's so much more that could be said. Um, Dr. Han, one thing that struck me uh, in, in reading the first section of the book was this idea of Christendom. And the idea that you hear today that Christendom is dead, that Christendom was something that happened in the past, and that this secularism that you talk about is kind of taking over this idea of Christendom, or, or secularism has become the new 
uh, ethos of, of life and culture instead of this kind of religious ethos. So can, can you talk about that? Is Christendom actually dead? Well, I think it is. You know, there's no doubt in my mind, but what we have to recognize, you know, are in a certain sense, three rival versions of religion. This was a section that I decided to leave out of the book, but there is an ancient understanding of religion. There is the classical Christian understanding of religion, which really overlaps. You know, when you look at Cicero, when you look at Aristotle, when you look at Plato, you basically find Augustine's sources. And when you study the city of God, you find Aquinas' sources. So the, the classical ancient understanding of religion is the highest form of justice. That ends up being replaced by the modern narrative. And the Via Moderna really originates before the Enlightenment in the 14th and 15th centuries. So prior to Luther, there is, a, there is an, an entirely novel understanding of religion that is introduced. And it, it's basically a tool or an instrument used by these nation states, these secular nation states that are arising in the 1400s, supporting Luther in the 1500s. And religion becomes a useful tool or an instrument, again, to privatize religion, to relativize the truth claims, and to also individualize it so that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, so is religion. And just as you might like pepperoni on your pizza and another guy likes pineapple, you know, so you can choose your religion. And by the time you reach the midpoint of the 17th century, the Treaty of Westphalia practically institutionalizes this second understanding of religion. Cuius regio, eius religio, basically means whoever is your king, he'll decide your religion. Because now religion is private, politics is public, believers are isolated, kings reign supreme. And now I think we have a postmodern view of religion. In a certain sense, postmodernists who would deconstruct all of these meta-narratives would basically take the modern view and just, you know, put it on steroids. But since Ken mentioned Alistair McIntyre and, you know, Adrian Vermeule and, uh, and so many others, in the last 10 or 20 years, I think there is a, a Christian postmodern account of religion that recognizes that we are all homo religiosus, that, that being religious is inherent in our nature. Finding, you know, what Paul Tillich might call an ultimate concern around which you wrap the social order, or at least your own life. You know, and again, referring back to Bob Dylan in his Christian phase in the 1970s, you got to serve somebody. And so when you recognize this secularist narrative that has rewritten all of Western history, it's almost like a palimpsest, you, you can see, oh my goodness, you know, uh, religion is inescapable, but religion is also inescapably public. And that to me is sort of like, wow, I never thought of that before. But once you do, you begin to think differently about everything. This is reminding me of, you know, kind of a basic question. Who's the audience? Like, who is your kind of target for, for reading this? Well, you know, 10 years ago, there wouldn't have been one at least for me, you know, because the people who are reading Vermeule or who are reading uh, Rod Dreher, who are reading, you know, Alistair McIntyre would rightly reduce me. Oh, he's a popularizer or he's at Steubenville. He's a convert, you know, etc. But I think right now there's a convergence and there's something of a need for a manifesto. And, and when Brad and I worked on this, the last thought 
to ever enter our minds. In fact, it never entered our minds was that we were working on a manifesto. You know, but when uh, Peter Kwasniewski reviewed the book not so long ago, Peter surprised me because we're good friends. We think in very similar and convergent ways, but he described it as a manifesto. I'm like, okay, yeah, well, that might be nice because, you know, a manifesto is usually a simplified summary account of things that bigger thinkers write bigger books about. And so in order to kind of mainstream this, so it's not just a rad trad option, you know, it's, it's not just a radical orthodoxy option. You know, those are the two poles. And there is an arc or a spectrum that I think encompasses uh, a whole lot more people now in the 2020s than we ever would have imagined in the teens. Yeah, one of the things that you bring out, it says that religion is a matter of justice. And one of the things we saw during this kind of the height of the whole pandemic was that there were a number of laws, not laws, but rules that governors or mayors were setting. Uh, there was one standard for businesses, you know, when you can open, how many people you can have, and a whole different standard for religious institutions. Right. For example, in the Archdiocese of Portland here, the governor had said if you're you know, a department store or a grocery store or even a pub or a, a tattoo parlor, you can have this many people uh, percentage-wise, percentage of, of uh, the, the occupation load. Oh, but for religious institutions, you're limited to X amount of people. So whether your church can hold 200 or 2,000, you're limited to like 20 to 25 people. We're like, whoa, how come they get the percentage and we're reduced to this, to this small number? And and we and our archbishop uh, issued a public letter, and eventually we did come into parity with the others. But but I think that's a, a symptom of this idea of of the justice of religion. Can you speak about that a little bit, please? Yeah, you know, if this book, it is right and just, ever comes out in a second edition, I think we would introduce this as Exhibit A. You know, it basically came out after it went to the printers. But this idea of treating religion as non-essential is a self-evident proposition for progressive secularists, because that's what the whole secularist narrative implies. On the other hand, we also heard a deafening silence on the part of Catholics in America. You know, McDonald's is open, you know, but our parish isn't. You know, so Ronald McDonald was there for us, but our pastor was just and. Again, I do not imply that the criticisms are valid. I just would say that everybody is bewildered, not only by the pandemic, but by the political circumstances that manifest the symptoms that you just indicated, Deacon Harold, that it is symptomatic, that everybody has absorbed this worldview that is secularist, that is liberal, that is progressive, so that we don't even question. It's the air we breathe, the water we drink. And I just want to say, Let's slow down. Let's walk it back. Let's rethink this because, you know, I refer to Jim Marshall, the great Viking defensive end with the record number of recovered fumbles that the one he recovered on October 25th, 1964, Billy Kilmer fumbled the ball for the 49ers and Jim Marshall picked it up and it seemed like a pick six, you know, but instead he ran it into the wrong end zone. And uh, this is the wrong way, you know, play that made, Jim so famous, and probably why he's not in the Hall of Fame right now. But I, I don't think that Jim was intending it. It wasn't mutinous. It wasn't an act of betrayal. You know, it's just what happens when you think the wrong way. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know how we're thinking the wrong way until suddenly you see a pot, you know, a pile of propositions that all strike you as obvious. And then you you do the math, you 
draw the conclusion, you know, and the catechism of the Catholic Church not only restores the virtue of religion in the sacrifice of the Mass as the way that we satisfy our obligation in an extraordinary and supernatural way, but it also speaks of religion as a virtue of the natural law. The natural virtue of religion is spoken of like a dozen times in the catechism. It's like, you all know this, when in fact, when I was reading it back in the early 90s, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it from Aquinas, but I never thought it would end up center stage in the universal catechism of the Catholic Church. But there it sits, largely overlooked. And people who see it don't know what to do with it, so it's usually ignored. But I mean, right now, we have to recover religion for the sake of our souls, but also our marriages, our families, but our neighborhoods. And I think people say, well, here again, it's the rhetorical zeal of a, a zealot convert, you know. But no, I mean, I think at this point, the collapse of this post-liberal society, uh, I mean, we've got to think in post-liberal ways, but do so as Catholic Christians, drawing on a, a tradition that certainly goes back to Aquinas and Augustine and Scripture, but one that is truly natural and universal as well. Well, Dr. Hahn, this is an incredible book, but as we're kind of wrapping up our time together tonight, how can people get a hold of it? Because we'd love to have you back next week to continue the conversation. So how can people get a copy of, of your book? Well, obviously through the usual outlets like Amazon, but I would also encourage people to uh, patronize their local Catholic stores, especially as we come to the aftermath of COVID and all of that. But the simplest way I would suggest is just go to stpaulcenter.com because the publisher is Emmaus Road, and that is the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology that Kimberly and I and Mike Aquilina co-founded about 20 years ago. So stpaulcenter.com, and you can get the book, and you can also share the link, as I would encourage our, our viewers to do. Wonderful. Well, and I will say that, I mean, I read the book, you know, basically overnight uh, because it it's wonderful. It really drags you along. It's written in your style. So it's, you know, it's very easy to read and yet deep. I mean, I have probably, I don't know, I probably did about a hundred highlights. So there's, there may be more highlighted than not in my copy of, uh, of your book already. So this has been a wonderful chat with Dr. Scott Hahn about his book, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, written in uh, collaboration with Brandon McGinley. And so, folks, we invite you to join us next week uh, here on Living Stones. You can connect with us on Facebook. Just type in Living Stones Media into the old Facebook search bar, and uh, we will be delighted to have you back with us next week as well, Doctor, to pick up the conversation. Thank you, Ken, and thank you, Deacon Harold. Awesome. Yeah. Might we have a blessing to get us through the week until then? Sure. I mean, Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.